the South Wales and North Wales Police Forces and the North Wales Police Commissioner, who is an elected person who oversees the police, was very much like, facial recognition technology is terrible, we're definitely not gonna use it, it's awful. But the guy from South Wales, the South Wales elected police commissioner, was very like, this is a great technology and we're totally gonna use it. I am Caleb Dinsey, a precision ag specialist living in Aurora, South Dakota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Tamandra Harkness, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. You come highly recommended from uh, one of the most intriguing people in all of the world that I know, Claire Fox, who said, uh, after she heard me talking about steel manning, she said, oh, if you want to know about how to have great disagreements with people where you know better ideas come out of it, you have got to talk to Tamandra Harkness. And so here we are. And uh, I'm excited to hear about how you developed an expertise that somebody like Claire speaks so highly of. It's high praise, I must say. Claire is one of the people I most admire in the world. Uh, and a lot of what I know about disagreeing well, I learned from her, uh, from doing events with her and watching her do events and run debates. So we, we go way back. Um, I guess I, my interest in, I mean, I've always done like chairing, hosting, facilitating, whatever you want to call it, like running running arguments in public, if you want. I've done that for a long time. And I just kind of picked it up naturally because part of my work is dealing with ideas. I've done do journalism and radio, but also in live events. Um, and then the other part of my work is I come from performing. I used to, at one point I was a professional stand-up comedian. And so I used to MC comedy clubs and you know, keep the audience in the right mood to welcome the next comic on. And it turns out the two things actually fit really well together because you're both of them, you're trying to get a good atmosphere in the room so that magic happens between people on stage and people off stage, but everyone actually, everyone contributes to the events. So that's, that's how I kind of got into it. But then it felt like the, the more that the state of public disagreement got worse, if you like, the, the, the worse the state of public argument got, the more I felt this is something that we need to pay attention to in itself and try and find ways that people can have better arguments, <laughs> as in not, not pull back from disagreeing, but disagree in a constructive way and, and a way that respects other people. I think you can respect other people without necessarily respecting their opinions even, or certainly without agreeing with them. But there's a bit of an assumption these days, I think, to think that if someone disagrees with you, it's because they haven't really understood what's going on, or maybe even they're a bit stupid, or that they're bad people. And I think that's, it's really unhelpful, but it's also just not the case. Mostly, if you bother to listen to someone who disagrees with you, they have their own reasons, which to them are really good reasons. And if you want to change their mind, you really have to know why they do think what they think. And you can only do that by listening to them. So I'm a bit dismayed that this, this is now seen as kind of a radical idea to, to actually say, if someone disagrees with you, that's the person you need to talk to and you need to listen to them. And who knows? I mean, maybe you're wrong. You know, I've, I've had things where I go and go, you're wrong about this because blah, blah, blah. And uh, why, do you, why do you think that? And then they come back and tell me and I go, Oh, actually, you've got a point there. Yeah, maybe I'm going to have to rethink this. 
Yeah, and in a way, if you can get over the ego part of being wrong, it's actually more fun to have this thing stripped away from you and then be like, now I know this new thing. You know, I I had like the weirdest paradox happen a few months ago. I had been hired to address a uh, college scientific group. And uh, they said, oh, we're so excited. We want you to talk about it. And we got it all signed up. We did the contract. Everything was ready. And then a few days before they go to print the um, material and send it out, uh, the, the administrator, who'd not been involved in it at all, wrote me and said, uh, I see in your title, you're using the phrase steel manning. And, um, you know, with a more gender inclusive language, this feels uncomfortable to a lot of people. So I'm wondering if we could call it a different term other than steel manning. And the reason this is a paradox is because now I have to actually take the time to steel man the argument against the idea that I should change the name of Steel Manning. What would you have done? <laughs> what would I have done? Well, I would have said it's called Steel Manning because it's the opposite of straw manning. And if people recognize the idea of a straw man argument, then this is a starting point for a different way of thinking about it. Uh, so, yeah. It, it's a tricky one because a lot of these things are very much about context, I think. That there are contexts where you, you want to say, you, you're wrong to be concerned about this because you're missing the point of what this is about. And, and I think quite often now things about language, people, people get upset about a word because they assume that it's connected with another word, but actually it isn't, it comes from a completely different route. But then there also comes a point where if somebody's going to be an obstacle to the, the subject you want to talk about, then is it worth having an argument about? So if they're really, really upset about steel planning, <laughs> then, and you can think of another word that says the same thing, then, you know, it, then maybe call it something else. But then it's, a, it's in itself perhaps an interesting topic to raise to say, I was originally going to call it this and I was asked to change it. Uh, because of this perception and what do people think and you know does it does it matter if you hear a word that doesn't nominally include you uh and and why do you think that it was interesting actually because i've just had the radio series on bbc on radio 4 called steel manning and that was we originally called it that uh radio works very very slowly in terms of commissioning so we we called it that and that was a follow-up to an earlier series i did called how to disagree a beginner's guide to better arguments. But we, we particularly wanted to use, you know, the technique, which we can go and talk about the steel manning technique. So we called it that. Uh, and then it and then it went up and then it and then the word came back down. It's like we were not sure about the title. And actually it was just because they didn't think people would know what it was about. They said, is there another title that will explain more what it's about? And so we came up with different title. And then the controller radio four came back and went, no, actually, I, I really liked the title because I thought it was kind of intriguing. <laughs> so we went back to it. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's not it's not saying only men can have arguments, is it? It's saying there's this old idea of a straw man where you build a straw figure, which is really weak and argue against that. And you can, you know, like you, you must have the three little pigs story. That's not just a unique. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, well, I don't know. Sometimes I talk about things and they go like, no, this is a weird British thing. We do not have that here. Um, so yeah, it's that, isn't it? You build the house of straw, the big bad wolf comes and blows it down. Um, and it's it's that idea, you build a straw man argument and then you blow it down. 
Whereas if you build an argument out of steel to argue against, then you know that your argument is strong if you can, if you can beat that. So it's, it's nothing to do with the gender of the person arguing. I really um, struggled with it. So, I, you know, at, at first I was, I felt that emotional kind of like, F you, right? Like I have precise language. Uh, this is, you know, this is what we agreed on. And then I had a friend that I, I brought it up to like my small network of people and said, what do you guys think of this? And my friend was like, well, if you go look at the Google, um, you know, that whatever that graph is where you put in a word and you see what oh, its usage graph. is, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, it is relatively new. So you're not actually talking about a, a term that's been, you know, endemic in the world. But the challenge that I ran up against and the reason I eventually said, this is the title and if you don't want it, then um, that's okay. But this is what we agreed to. I just will back out. Um, was that it, I, every term I tried to use that would replace that would lead people further away from the ideas that would help them learn how to do this. And steel manning is actually difficult to do. Like it is one of those arts, not unlike learning how to do stand-up comedy or not unlike learning how to play an instrument, because at first you understand the concept. I'm going to take the other person's argument and I'm going to make it as strong as I possibly can and then argue against it. But when you get into the nuance of steel manning, it takes real practice and you're going to fail. And so if you take an idea and say, but we're going to call it this other thing, then the very thing I've been asked to do, help young people be prepared for a world where they can push back on people that are um, against the science that they're publishing, then I'm not doing them any favors. So I don't know if I did the right thing, but I definitely hammered on it as hard as I could. Yeah. And did they accept that in the end? Yeah, I think because there was no time left. I don't. I don't think I won an intellectual <laughs> debate, and uh, and I like so. I think that that's why your connection between steel manning and comedy is so interesting, because like there's something to do with comedy where you have to be present and you have to be acknowledging what the other side is saying and thinking, and and but it's got to be in that moment. And so I like when you got into comedy, you couldn't possibly have known it would it would take you to this world of of steel manning, right? <laughs> No, no. I mean, no, it's, it's gotten me all sorts of things. It also it kind of led in a roundabout way to me going back and studying maths and statistics. And I'm now a graduate statistician. Uh, <laughs> I would never have foreseen any of that. But no, I mean, I, I, I got into comedy, I think, because, he, I, because the bug got me and I wanted to try it. And then I found that people laughed at me and I and I couldn't stop. And, you know, basically, I think similar to a lot of people, but that's really perceptive what you said about, you have to be present and you have to acknowledge, because I think a lot of people when they start out in comedy, they think that the important thing is to write funny jokes. Now, obviously you need funny jokes. You can't, you, know, you can't get away with indefinitely being on a stage as a comedian and not having funny jokes. But actually that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the rapport between you and the audience, the relationship between you and the audience. And a lot of that depends not just on you projecting yourself and coming on with an air of, I'm here, I'm funny, I'm really charismatic, you should listen to me. But actually exactly what you just said, acknowledging what is happening in the room. Because sometimes you will misjudge something and you'll, you'll make a joke or something that People, it, it goes a bit far maybe for that particular audience or maybe something else has happened in the room with that audience that you're not aware of. And so 
And so something that you thought was a little light joke actually <laughs> turns out to hit a nerve or you just, or you just must misjudge the mood. There's, there's a lot of variation between live audiences. I've seen a lot of comics who, like me, started off really in, there were a lot of comedy clubs in London with quite similar audiences, city audiences, uh, quite politically soft left, liberal. Uh, so we tend to agree on things and often the comics would be from the same background. And so I've got this wonderful act, everybody loves it, la la la. And then you go out of London, maybe only a few miles to a small market town and do the same jokes and people are sitting there going, well, we don't find that funny at all. I remember a night after, it was after an election night in the UK and the Labour Party, which, you know, the left, the left party, roughly, <laughs> uh, had just won. And so everyone in, everyone in London, everyone in, in Islington, North London was, was terribly happy. And, uh, and we went out to this, again, it's a market town, not that far out of London. And I just thought, you know, I am not going to assume that all the people in this town voted for the Labour government because they're quite different people. And the comedian before me went on and was all this, oh, ha, ha, isn't it great? You know, Labour have won. Like, it's really frosty, really frosty. Like, yeah, you can't assume that everyone thinks the same. So anyway, sorry, to come back from what you were saying. So that ability to actually listen and sense and see what's going on for the other people, I think is just as important as being able to write funny things and and the ability to acknowledge it the ability to go and I would have ended up talking to myself in the audience's voice I, I used to make I think I made jokes about um some jokes about the royal family and that would that would always be a bit like oh is this are they going to come with me on this or are they going to be a bit offended and I would end up going no Tamandra we're all monarchists and we're going to take you outside and chop off your head. And that would be fine. And then they would go, okay, all right. We can see that you read the room. You, you, you could see that we didn't agree with you on this. You've acknowledged that that's fine. We can be friends. Let's move on. But I, I, but I actually hadn't really consciously thought of that until you said that, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and I think with the steel manning and the being present in the moment, like, I often say, like, if you are ever in a situation where you notice the other person is raising their voice with you, it's because they're, they don't, they're not even aware most of the time that they're doing it. But it's an unconscious thought that thinks, well, if they're not agreeing with me, it must be because they haven't heard me. And therefore, I have to get louder. I have to put more emotion. I have to, I have to tell them, alert them to the idea that you should be present here. And that steel manning um, allows people to feel like, okay, this guy actually really does know my point of view. And so I don't have to fight through to get to, to make sure that they understand what I'm saying. And I, th I've never thought about it in this comedian way because I'd never, but having that feeling and that rapport with the room is the exact same thing. If you're going to change anybody's mind, you're not going to do it if you don't have rapport. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to change your mind, their mind by just talking louder. I mean, this is like, yeah, it's famously the thing the English are meant to be really guilty of is traveling around the world, possibly to countries that we've invaded in the past and not speaking the local language. And, uh, and when people reasonably don't understand us speaking English, we, we talk slower and louder. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a joke. I hope it's not always true. <laughs> but that is that is the joke. It's like 
Ah, oh, why well, they didn't understand me speaking the language which I speak. <laughs> I know I shall speak louder and slower. Uh, <laughs> like it's somehow their fault that they didn't understand. Yeah, that's that's really well observed. So when you're doing steel manning as a as a production, right? You're putting together a series. The challenge is that you're doing this over a long period of time and like you likely don't have a moment or maybe you do where you're like, oh, my mind's been totally blown about this. Right. Like you come at it slowly. What was it like to try and translate the idea of steel manning into something that takes a long time to put together? Well, it was partly challenging because each episode was only 14 minutes long. So you had to compress a whole argument, a whole theme into 14 minutes. And and obviously we recorded longer and edited down, but even so it's quite tight. Um, so we, we played around with different format ideas. And what we ended up with was, the idea is that I would basically, I would try and steal man things that I, that I thought, as in try and find somebody to disagree with me with the strongest possible arguments against what I thought on five different topics and then but but then there would be a kind of a staged process where first of all we'd have an initial like sparring match if you like where we just kind of get the sense of what are the key points that we disagree on but then send them away to get their arguments strengthened up even more and then they come back with their arguments strengthened to, to you know try and give me a good hammering intellectually and uh and then see if i did change my mind or even at least go Okay, I haven't changed my mind, but I can see that my arguments weren't good enough. So I'm going to have to do better. And what we ended up doing was that we would send them away to be coached by someone who disagreed with them. So it was kind of, we were putting them slightly through the same process. We'd get somebody who agreed more with me than with them to give them, but somebody, one of them said, sort of the, uh, like, from behind enemy lines, giving them the insider tips. And that was quite funny. And obviously I didn't hear this at the time because that would have been cheating. So I kind of have an initial conversation, send them away to get coaching, which I didn't hear. And then they would come back with the best arguments. And some of them were really honest and said, oh, well, I got that argument off Kevin. He told me that would work. And some of them weren't. And it wasn't until I listened back later, I went, why didn't he use this other argument? Because I would have really found that hard to answer, and he didn't. So that that's was brilliant. That was that, that's definitely like, uh, you know, and it makes me think about the, the sensation you have when you're arguing is that I must win right now, and that right now is what matters. And just to have that time delay and then to have somebody be thinking about it and then planning to come back together, you inherently would have better discussions. In fact, the person is probably more interesting the second time. Mostly, yeah. Although I think there was one person actually who was so good the first time that it was almost like she couldn't have got any better. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely, and it, and it happened over a few weeks altogether. So relatively compressed but people certainly had at least a day or two in between to think about it and so did I uh to have to think about it and they were by definition quite thoughtful discussions because for for me they were all things that I had thought about quite a lot which is why I felt like it was I had enough of an opinion to be worth putting on the radio and then we would deliberately find the person that we thought was absolutely the best the most informed the most articulate person on the other side. And we were very lucky. People 
because it's quite a what big were some of the topics that you that you that you hammered through okay so for example uh should the police be able to use facial recognition technology routinely as part of policing and uh, my view is they shouldn't. They should be able to use it in very particular situations, but they should be able to make a case and get you know, a judge or whoever to to say that it's particularly allowed on this occasion because it's proportionate. And in the UK, it's I think we're at a slightly earlier stage than you're in the States in, in discussion about this because the police have kind of started using it a bit. <laughs> on the quiet and then a few people have started protesting about it but it's not really become a big issue um but the, but there is one police force that has been quite gung-ho about using it it's been quite like this is great we're going to use this and it's in south wales because we have our, our police forces are they're, they're all kind of separate they, they go by area but they're kind of separate from other governmental bodies it's just slightly weird it's almost like a federal police force and uh, so there's, and Wales is interesting because there's the South Wales and North Wales police forces and the North Wales police commissioner, who is an elected person who oversees the police, was very much like facial recognition technology is terrible. We're definitely not going to use it. It's awful. But the guy from South Wales, the South Wales elected police commissioner, was very like, this is a great technology and we're totally going to use it. And... Uh, and we're not ashamed. And, and so, and we got him, we got the South Wales police commissioner to basically come and argue with me. Uh, and then to strengthen him up, we got in uh, a guy that I'd met in California who cha now chairs the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission. It's called Brian Hofer. He's a uh, um, he's an attorney, but he's been very active in privacy campaigning. And in fact, he now, so he was involved in, San Francisco banning the use of government use of facial recognition technology and he's gone around and advised people so they had to do it over zoom obviously <laughs> but um so we got him to to coach our police commissioner guy and people like that I actually felt it was quite good of them to take it on and come on board because you're asking them in public to get involved in an argument about something that is quite important policy for them and to be very open about their their methods of arguing, if you like, about you know the way they make their case. Whereas I think in the real world, people like that are more likely to go off in private and go, well, we want to do this. How are we going to put this across to the public so it sounds fine? <laughs> Not even in a sneaky way, but just that you know that's politics. Is you go, we want to make our best case in public, but the but the stuff about how we make the case, we're going to keep private. Um, I think that's like the the exact challenge with cancel culture, right? Like if, if you make it so people don't have a place in public for them to air out their ideas, it's not like they're going to stop having ideas. They're only going to have those ideas around people that already agree with them or already agree with shades of what they're saying. And so the echo chamber is real. And I've definitely watched it happen to myself where you start with the kernel of an idea, but the only people you can talk about it with are people that are just like you that already agree that you know are not going to leak that idea out. And eventually that idea gets warped and turned and bent and it's not good. But if you try and take those ideas out into the public, you, you'll be, you know, um, take, torn apart just for trying to have them in general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I do think that's a real danger. And, 
And I also, I just, I notice it with people who never get their ideas challenged because their ideas are just widely considered to be self-evidently good. Um, so I, I've done some radio series called Future Proofing with a guy called Leo Johnson, who's, who's very into environmentalism. And sometimes it'd be a programme, I think we did one on the future of energy and he was very like, you know, we should all go renewables and solar. And, and I was like, well, you know, they, those are good, but they have limitations. And, and this is why we should also go for things like nuclear, uh, which was actually, that was another topic in the steel manning series was nuclear power. And, and sometimes we would get into arguments and I would see that he was just not used to having to argue a particular case because he'd never met anyone who was prepared to say I disagree with you on this because it was either people who just went well I don't like the sound of that but I haven't really got a coherent case or people who were like well I don't know I'm just going to keep quiet because everybody thinks this is good and I don't want to look like the bad guy and actually <laughs> if I actually said but you know, I don't think nature has an inherent value. Nature is valuable because humans value it. So that's why nature has a value. It's because we humans value it. And if humans weren't here, there would be no value to nature because there would be nothing to value it. You know? and, and he was just baffled that anyone would say nature had no inherent value. He'd never, you could tell nobody would ever... <laughs> argued with him on that point and, and I just think that's I think that's really bad because let's say I'm definitely not right on everything I'm sure there'll be things that I will in future years look back and go I was wrong to think that but you you have to test you have to test your beliefs by having people in good faith Really well, I, I'm totally in agree. I spent five years as a spokesperson for Monsanto. So many uh -huh. people oh, yeah. view this company as pure evil. And yeah. what I would find was I, you know, thought that I had to go down to the prison gym and pump iron and become so well adapted to this argument and understand every little nuance before I went out to the public to speak. And what I realized when I encountered people was that they literally had never met anyone that was like, no, I think GMOs are, are, you know, really positive and they have these other benefits to get rid of herbicides and here are these things. Like, never. And so yeah. for them, they, they literally, it was like water to them. It was everyone knows GMOs are bad. Everyone knows that organic is inherently good. The only thing we're trying to figure out is how can we make organic cheaper and quit letting industrial companies run the world with GMOs? And, and so like anytime they encountered some different idea about that, it was almost too easy. Like I really did expect that I was going to be like, you know, boxing and sparring all the time. And I had to realize that like my coming in that way only, only made it worse. In fact, I just had to just gently be like, Hey, there's another way of thinking about it. And it would kick off all these discussions. Yeah, I can imagine that's exactly, it's another one of those, those conversations where, I mean, you know, I think it's always been that way. Certainly, I look back when I was younger, I, I thought nuclear power was terrible. Uh, and all the reasons why I thought it was terrible were just, yeah, you know, you go and you hang around the right people and they, and they give you all the reasons you're like, they're good. But actually, it had just come from, well, that was the kind of thing that people like me believed and the people that I hung out with believed. And it, you know, and it fitted with a lot of instincts, which are, you know, nature is lovely and, uh, 
invisible dangers are not good. <laughs> you know, it's not kind of very basic things. And all you have to do is plug those into nuclear or GMOs or whatever. And, and, it's a, and it's a very easy thing. If you don't have somebody coming back and saying, but look, what are we actually after here? Are we after providing enough energy for everybody in the world to live the kind of, you know, the kind of life that you and I live, where we have electricity and hot water and we're near a hospital and we can talk to each other across thousands of miles and all this. Uh, if so, then we're gonna need a lot more energy. So how do we go about getting it? And then it becomes a practical question or, you know, with GMOs, are we after a world where we waste less food we lose less of it to insects. People can make a living farming and we can all have access to tasty, nutritious food, a variety of food at different times of the year. Well, you know, if we agree on that, then it becomes a practical thing of, of how and what are the advantages and disadvantages. Of course, then the interesting thing comes that sometimes you don't agree on those basics and you realise that when people say I'm against these things, what they actually mean is to me, the purity of food or the purity of our relationship with nature is more important than providing enough food for everybody. Yeah, or I find that that we, you like, know, perhaps they go, well, if there's if there's not enough food for all the people, perhaps we need less people. And I think that's why, like, um, you know, there's that uh, phrase in philosophy, like the very first day you go to take logic class, they say uh, the, he who controls the definition controls the argument. Right. And you think about like when you start thinking about what is it that we want, however you define what that is, whatever you can get everybody or like what is good or what is. And you have these nebulous, vague terms that normally don't get um, defined that without those definitions, you will always argue at cross purposes because the the thing that the other one side is trying to get to has nothing to do. It's totally divorced from what the other side wants. Yes. And, and I think, I mean, that's one thing I find interesting that sometimes, sometimes arguments are not the argument they initially appear to be. So sometimes they will appear to be a pragmatic argument about how you get something or what's an acceptable level of risk. Uh, and then actually, when you start to pull it apart, you realize that's not the argument. The argument is, what are your fundamental priorities? Is it about all human beings having plenty of something? Or is it about some idea of purity or, or or whatever it is um and and i think conversely sometimes you get arguments that appear to be principled arguments but actually are about different interests in society that you know what's good for you isn't always good for me and so on so i, I think for me that's always one of the important things to tackle at the, at the start is to go let's see if we can dig down and by as you say trying to define what what is the thing that we're arguing over you might actually find that the agreement is one layer below that the, the the disagreement rather is is actually below that the disagreement is on what it is you're arguing over what is the thing that we both want is there a thing that we both want maybe there isn't maybe we want completely different things and that's why we disagree on this seemingly and then the be the more interesting argument is the one underneath the surface. Like if you can find out what are you actually arguing about, that's when you start saying, oh, that person literally has a different worldview than I. Not not just that like they don't understand the nuances of economics in the way that I do or they don't understand, you know, how farming works in the way that I do. They, they literally want something else as the end result of, of where they're going. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and that's always going to happen, obviously. But... 
I think we're not always honest about that. I think we sometimes, but I guess, I mean, yeah, it's like what you just said, I guess, about controlling the argument. If you frame the disagreement such that nobody is going to question what it is that you fundamentally want, then you're always fighting on the, the, the battlefield that you choose and and the other person is never going to win because you fun, they have been forced to accept the goal that you had in mind. Yeah, so, and I, yeah. so there's a concept, and I, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the intransigent minority. It's the idea that Nassim Taleb talks about. No. So this is this is worthwhile to explore. So Nassim Taleb talks about this concept that we think the world changes because if if all ideas have some like bell distribution where most people are kind of in the center, they're like, hey, whatever, you know, the we like we want policies that um, are against climate change. And you think, well, the way that that changes is that the mass of people move from point A to point B or they shift in one direction. But he says that's not actually the way that it works. The way that culture changes is that there is a small group of people that will not accept any other solution. So they will say, this is the thing that I demand, and I will cause all sorts of problems if you don't agree with it. So an easy one might be vegans or anti-GMO people, right? They can say, I demand that my food not have GMOs in it. I will not accept it. And so if you're, say, for example, doing a, like a bake sale, and you're going and you're looking at like, oh, I've got to pick up some brownies to make for this bake sale. You pick one up that's just Betty Crocker. You make the brownies. You show up. They go to sell them. And the intransigent minority person is like, I will not participate in this whatsoever. If there are GMO brownies, what are you trying to kill everyone? I won't participate. That They may still sell them there, right? But the next time you go to the store to make brownies for the, for the bake sale, you're going to be like, look... If I get the GMO brownies, then Sue is going to lose her mind. So it's easier for me just not to do this. And then you shift a little bit. And then that ultimately is how the, the, the tables are almost always slanted in favor of the group that absolutely refuses to negotiate at all. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that's always true, though. I, by always, I mean, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of that says something about the here and now that I think as, as societies now, as certainly as kind of, you know, developed Western societies, we are quite geared up to accommodate intransigent minorities because we are quite geared up to say that people getting what they feel is important to them is really important. And it's so important that it's reasonable to reorganize great chunks of society around that. Uh, however unimportant that seems to the rest of us. Now, obviously, there's, there's a really good side to this, which is things like religious toleration. It's like just because only a small minority of people follow a particular religion, it doesn't follow that you should go, well, tough. You're going to have to live your entire life. Uh, in ways that transgress your own fundamental beliefs, because it's very inconvenient for the rest of us to provide what you what you want and what you need. Um, so I think, you know, in, in that sense, it's a very good development that, in fact, we can be actively tolerant of people with quite niche beliefs and values. But but I think there's also an unhealthy thing about it, which which is a kind of relativism that says well, what do we lose if we all give up 
the you know if we all give up a future where we eat butter because some vegans think that that's a really important value even though the rest of us don't actually think that really they haven't convinced us and they haven't made the case then I, I kind of feel like we're laying ourselves open to giving up things that might be important whether those are freedoms or or, or values that are more universal if we don't actually think well what's the you know what, what are you asking the rest of us to give up by this and, and are you asking the rest of us to give up? I mean, because that's the other thing is, you know, lots of people are quite capable of having their own beliefs and go, well, this is my belief and this is how I'm going to live. But, you know, you, you get on with it. It's, it's, I'm kind of thinking, I suppose, because one of the other steel manning programs was about whether we should all be vegans. And it's uh, this wonderful woman to make the case that we should. She's called Kay Peggs. Just really, really thoughtful and, um, yeah, really made me actually think about the moral basis of it. And... That's interesting for me because I spent years being a vegetarian. I started when I was a child. So I was a vegetarian for 18 years. And, uh, and, and when I started out, it was quite unusual. I mean, certainly veganism was almost unheard of. I knew a couple, but they were quite odd. It was not an usual thing. Um, being vegetarian was unusual enough. I ate a lot of omelets for many, many years. <laughs> There was not this thing where you'd go now and you'd go to absolutely any restaurant or fast food chain and there will be something for vegetarians or vegans. It wasn't like that at all. But there was no sense that just because I had got this thing that other people should rearrange their lives for me. It was like, okay, well, that's fine, but you know, we're not going to rearrange society for you. Whereas now I think there is this sense of actually this is my belief and it's not enough that you should give me elbow room so that I can live as I want but actually you all have to live as I want you you all have to accommodate and and value my beliefs and of course you then get you then get situations where two incompatible belief systems come into conflict because both of them want other people outside of their own belief group to to live according to their beliefs and uh and we don't seem to have good ways of dealing with that now we don't seem to have any kind of idea that there are shared civic values if you like that we can agree on and go okay well you know toleration is important but freedom to live as you want and not as someone else thinks you ought to live is also part of that and therefore you know, we, everyone should have this much room, but not encroach on, you know, whatever it is. So we, we just don't seem to have that space for letting the intransigent minority get on with it without everybody else going, oh, oh, so do we, do we all have to give up butter then? And, and, we, and we have this like, um, you know, democracy is not altogether different from mob rule if you don't have free speech. Right. Like the the thing that keeps democracy from being just the mob getting together and saying we've got 51 percent. And so everybody else has to endure whatever we believe. The major limiting factor there is the ability to argue. And you you did a video or I saw a video that, um, about the personalized century and about how people are using technology. And um, I found myself like falling down into the, I, I only, I was, I had a set amount of time I could research you, but I started watching this personalized century and it was a, 
extremely insightful because I think that some of the things you're talking about are what are guiding us down a path towards a mob-ruled democracy as opposed to um, a robust and, and exciting um, heterogeneous society. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that because I've got a book proposal out at the moment on that very topic. So I'm hoping, that, hoping that's going to be my next book. Um, yes, I think, I think that is part of the problem. I think, and it's that we, we have the sensation that the past was a mass society. So our, maybe our grandparents' lives, they lived as part of a mass society and everybody got, you know, same size fits all and were treated as masses and, you know, healthcare and warfare and marketing and everything was, was done to people en masse and it was all a bit faceless. And, and But now it's the 21st century and we've emerged as individuals and everyone can express themselves. Uh, and isn't this great? But actually what I realized, and I kind of started from the technology and then and then moved, zoomed out and went, hmm, well, actually, it, that's the sensation, but it's not actually true because a lot of these things, we are still treated as part of a mass. It's just that what used to be, I mean, they used to say, in, about 100 years ago, they used to segment the market. So they'd go, oh, we're going to market this to you know, farmers in the Midwest or to factory workers in Chicago, because we know that they're different sorts of people and they love different amounts of money and different concerns and different things they want to buy. So you would be targeted, but in this very broad brush way. Uh, now you're targeted according to loads of really niche things like what you last searched for on the internet or, uh, I mean, obviously still things like your age and where you live uh, and your income, but things like, well, if you're on the internet, what device are you using? Because we can make assumptions about you based on, you know, are you using an Apple Mac computer or an old laptop or whatever? And so we get the sensation it's all personalized, but actually it's just that, it's just mass marketing, but the niches are tiny. But, but from our side of it, it's much worse because we're not part of a mass, because we're doing all these things as an individual, we don't get the support and the solidarity that we would get from being part of a mass. So we don't we don't get to confer with each other and go, I mean, you think of the, the poor old Uber drivers who uh, <laughs> Uber keep trying to say, they're not workers. We, we, have, a, we have a free contract with them. <laughs> well, I don't know, you set the rates and tell them where to go. And uh, so it sounds like they're workers. It's just, you don't want to pay them any <laughs> sick pay or anything. But the Uber drivers, they don't all go to work in the same place. It's not easy for them to confer with each other and go, I'm getting this. What are you getting for this? Don't you think we should organize and do something about this? Uh, because, because we're doing things as individuals. So I, I do think that's part of the problem that we are, and, and we're doing everything as individuals. We're quite atomized. And so if you think about how, how public debate happens. It's very easy because you're doing it through social media that you fall into a niche of people who think like you. And then, but then you do, when you do encounter people who don't agree with you, it, you suddenly feel like your whole identity is threatened. It's not just, oh, here's some of the different opinion. It's like, well, my identity now depends on being seen as somebody who thinks this. I mean, that's that's yeah. the fascinating part about social media, right? Like it turned what could have been a meritocracy or some sort of other thing to our conversations being honor culture, where where if somebody besmirches my reputation, 
I will be, you know, people will look down on me. I may be unfollowed. I may lose social status. And when we had institutions like churches and community groups, the, the thing was you might have your beliefs, but you had to moderate them because if you were going to see this person in church next week. So if you completely obliterated them in an argument this week, then next week you've got to see her again, you know, like, so you had to find a way to moderate what you're thinking. And then that allowed you to also hear other ideas without them being threats against who you are as a, as a social symbol. And uh, that, th- that to me is like, then you get into these weird kind of um, exactly to your point of you're an individual, you're thinking like an individual, but you're also a part of this mass. You're being marketed in this weird way. Like I think so much about the way we are bonded together as human beings has changed in the last 20 years as to be nearly impossible to understand. Yeah, I I think that is the big, big change. I mean, you know, obviously lots of things have changed in the last hundred years, but I I do think that that is a massive, massive change that our collective lives have been so eroded. And yet we can connect through technology, especially, but it's always as individuals. So we have this completely different relationship, not only with institutions and, and so on, but also with each other. Um, it was interesting actually I was at a kind of virtual conference over the weekend and somebody was talking about their research into debate on social media and how they'd gone into the research with all these assumptions about how it's social media that's terrible that makes us all so angry and what they'd actually found was that it wasn't so much that it was that the way we used social media which came out of kind of the way society is, is, is run now so they said we realized that people don't go into social media either to discuss things or to have their opinions validated they go into social media to build their identity and their identity as part you know as individuals and also as part of the the group of people they agree with and that's why the exchanges rapidly get so heated is precisely because that you know your identity is your opinions so if someone disagrees with you it it is maybe maybe we should bring back dueling maybe that's the answer that if you if you if you're you can only be that rude to people on social media if you are prepared to go out with um maybe swords rather than pistols but it's like actually you've got to meet and have a sword fight before you're allowed back on twitter so the technology that i think is going to uh rock our world again um probably as dramatically as social media that i don't see people talking about is virtual reality and uh, just last night, I you know got together a group of people. We have a I, I run a network called the Articulate Ventures Network, and we have an underground bar. So if you're part of the network, we'll send you a link, and whenever you want, you can pop in there with a group of people. So last night there were I don't know maybe seven or eight, maybe ten people there, and you see what happens is that people break out into clusters because there's two different rooms in the bar, and if you're standing far enough away from other people with your avatar. You can hear them talking like in a bar, but you're able to carry on a conversation without being interrupted. So as discussions happen, people come and go, but you are aware that other people are listening to you and that you're, you have to give a break for air. You have to turn and talk with these other people. And it's, I don't think it's going to be the panacea or solve everything, but it is way different to have a disagreement in a virtual reality space where you can turn and look at people than than anything you just see just blankly on your on your phone uh, like through Twitter or Instagram. That's really interesting. I was yeah I was um 
the the end of this virtual conference they did a kind of end of conference thing in a in a platform called gather which was quite interesting it's not virtual reality but it is set up so that there's there's a kind of there's a very crude grid plan space so it's more like um I don't know, not even, I think not even as sophisticated as Minecraft, probably like a very early computer game, but you've got little squares and you make your little avatar and you can move around the squares. But then when you get close enough to people, then their pictures pop up like a, you know, a bit like a Zoom conversation and then you can hear each other. But when you move away, you stop hearing them. So it is, it's the closest thing I've seen to like being in a physical space with people where you can wander over and wander off again. Um, and and it does have that nice thing of you can, you know, like at a real party, you can vaguely see who else is there in the distance, uh, but you can you can see and hear the people that you're, you're close to. But I think the virtual reality would definitely add something to that because there are there are all those subtle normal cues that you get in real life, like eye contact and body language that you can literally read the room. You know, like we were saying earlier, like, you, you you can get a sense of not just the very literal, I say this, you say that, but how, you know, how's this going down? Am I making people uncomfortable? Are they making me uncomfortable? Are people interested? Is somebody dying to come in and, and argue with me? Now, I'd be really interested to, to see that. I mean, obviously I hope that we'll, we'll soon be back in real rooms with real people, but there also are advantages to the virtual connection, I think, because you don't have to, I mean, you know, here are you and I, however many, what, thousands of miles apart, and yet we're, we're having a very natural conversation. And I, I, I think that won't go away because it's really nice to be able to bring in people regardless of distance or, you know, <laughs> people who've got three kids at home and can't just up and off and travel hundreds of miles just for a couple of hours meeting can be involved in things. So that, yeah, that's it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I think when we were all excited about the internet at first, we thought, oh, well, you know, the next time somebody's making a case for the Iraq war, then I'll, as a citizen, be able to get on the internet and find a citizen of Iraq and we'll be able to talk and figure out, like, are, do you guys really have a dictator? Should we be sending somebody over? But that's not at all what ended up happening, right? Exactly what you talked about with the personalized century and, and people being in these like clusters uh, on their own and not actually getting out. But I actually didn't let you explain very well your kind of o overall premise of the of the personalized century. Where do you think that the century goes if it's this personalized? Well, this is this is one interesting thing, because I've been thinking about it for probably a couple of years now. Um, it, and it came out of previously just writing about big data and, and technology and, and starting to think, actually, there's something interesting going on here, which is more than the tech. And I have to you know, look a bit wide and realizing that there's, there's psychology, there's economics, there's politics, all these things are converging. Um, so, I, I mean, I kind of slightly schematically say you can look at it's the coming together of three strands, which is the technology obviously makes it possible because the technology is not fundamentally different from like the, the Hollerith desk that sorted the American census file cards in the 19th century. It's just much, 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 much more sophisticated than that, but, but it is much more sophisticated and we carry it around everywhere. So we're always connected, but equally important, I think is the fact that, 
we simply have much more choice. So we have choices that our grandparents didn't have. We, we have material choice because, you know, the developed world is much wealthier. Um, but we also have social choice because politically and socially things have freed up. So, you know, you don't, you don't have to get married to somebody of the opposite sex, have children, women don't have to give up work to look after the children and so on. It's like you genuinely can not do that you can get married to someone of the same sex you know, in certainly most western countries you can adopt children you can not have children There's, and and those things are not just legal but widely socially tolerated so you really can choose how to live uh but but also the the, the kind of the primacy of identity as the way we understand ourselves in the world i, I think is really key because Sometimes I would look at the technology and go, but now we understand so much more about all the data that's collected about us and how we are profiled and targeted and manipulated, really. You know, we, 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 see, we see a menu of things to choose from, but we don't write the menu. <laughs> Somebody else has pre-written the menu and we go, oh, isn't this nice? I've got choice. It's like, yeah, you've got like four choices. There's a million choices there. Someone else has decided. And I just thought, why, why do we, why do we keep coming back to this? Because there's obviously something in us that it appeals to. And I realise it's this thing of, if your identity is both really important to you, it's really like, you know, wh who am I? What's my identity? Or even what am I? Like, how can I define myself in terms that other people will recognise and respond to? is really important, but it's also because we have all these choices, because we're not constrained by having been born in a place to certain parents, there's always that slight arbitrariness about it. So you go, this is my identity and you must, you must respect it. And you must, you know, I am, I am one of many, many intransigent minorities. It's like, this is, this is who I am. And I insist that you recognize and respect me for who I am. But there's a little bit of you going, but I chose to be this person, which means that I could have chosen to be somebody else. So there's always the chance that, you know, maybe I maybe I don't fit into this group after all. Or maybe maybe if people don't actually recognize me as part of this group, maybe I'm not. Maybe I will drift off and be be something else. And and and, and so there's just that little bit of insecurity. And that's why we, I mean, that's why social media is so brilliant because you're constantly putting stuff out there going, this is who I am. And people go, yes, we see you. That's who you are. And you go, phew. And that will keep you going for however long. And then a bit later, like, I just want to just want to check that people, oh yeah, no, people still recognize me for who I am. Uh, I think that's, that's the genius of it. And social media is the very obvious one because we are constantly putting out our a persona. A, you know, this is, this is me, but better. This is me, but more interesting and witty and with better photographed food, <laughs> whatever it I is. I mean, that's such an interesting like paradox that you present there because it's like, okay, if everything is um, up for grabs, you can choose it, then, then the world is exactly what you make of it. We can change anything. There, nothing is immutable. Or if you go the opposite direction and say, I didn't choose this. This is just who I am. Either way that you construct that identity, they can't both be true at the same time. And yet we live in a world 
where they are interchangeably like whichever suits me better i am who i am this is the way that you know nature created me or god created me or i can construct and be anyone i want to be i never really thought about that hellscape paradox inside of our brain exactly it's this massive paradox and it's and it's you know i mean we've always we've always to some extent i think had this thing of i am not quite the person that other people think I am. There's a public me and then there's an inner me that nobody really understands. Especially when you're a teenager, I think we all like, nobody really understands the inner me. Well, that's uh, why Harry Potter re- relates to people, right? They're like, because yeah. everybody kind of secretly thinks that they were in the wrong family and that they're a wizard. Yeah, I've got underneath. magical powers. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, or Twilight. Remember seeing the film of Twilight? Uh, no. And that was, <laughs> it's not a great film, but it was, it was brilliant for teenage girls. Because you've got you've got this girl who so she moves to Washington State where everything's kind of moody and 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 whatever, but she's very moody and she literally is like, oh, you know, all these uh, the, the kids in my new high school they're all very nice, but they don't really understand me because I'm kind of more deep and um, and than they are, but they they don't get it except this one guy, this one guy who gets it, uh, who's a vampire, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and only he understands me, and yet even he he can read everybody else's mind, but he can't read my mind because I'm too mysterious, uh, and that's why he, he's attracted to me. I literally just watch it go, yeah, that's totally what it's like being a, certainly a teenage girl, but I suspect any teenage oh teenage boy too, yeah. Nobody yeah. really understands me because i am much deeper than everybody else i can see the multitudes inside of myself and yet the other people that i look at i would share my ideas with them but they're really not deep enough to understand it i mean i hear this i actually hear this all the time from uh young people that are in college to all the way up to people that are 40 50 years old and like of course right it's that blanket that we wrap around our ego to make it so it's like, look, the suffering that I endure in this world or the challenges I endure, I am special. And that's what makes yeah. all of this worthwhile. And you don't want people not to feel that way. But if you feel it too much to an extreme, you have really uncovered a paradox. I'm going to think about quite a bit going forward. It's just, I think it's fascinating because it is like, it, it's exactly that both things are simultaneously true. It's like, this is my inner essence and this is who I am. And if you, if you do not recognize me as this inner essence then i will literally cease to exist uh but at the same time my freedom and my self-determination consists in my being able to choose who i am uh which sounds very empowering but then okay but then if you've just chosen that which is great then it's not your inner essence is it and and so you shouldn't care so much whether other people affirm it and recognize it because you know you've you've chosen it I, I do think it's I think it's really interesting and I and I think we're only just starting to see how important it is as a driver of other things because then when you when you see it like that you think well of course of course the personalizing stuff makes complete sense because if you are the center of the universe as in you know there's this inner essence which is you and who you really are then you, you, of course, you want the rest of the universe to just reflect that back to you, and and only show you things that you can buy that will allow you to truly express who you are, and uh, and only show you television programs to watch that will respond to the the deeply meaningful and poetic person that you really are, uh, and and all this kind of thing, and it and it feeds that sense of being at the center of the universe, and rationally, of course, we know that everybody else gets the same. Right? It's like rationally, we know. The universe is not organized around us, but 
on that emotional level, we want to feel that the universe is revolving around us. And, and that's the illusion of everything being personalised, is the whole world revolves around you. It isn't that lovely. It's like being a child again. Yeah, there's something that the warm blanket that wraps around you because human beings are the only animal conscious that they are going to die in the future and not have a What's sense of it. Die? Yeah, right. Nobody tell me that. Shit. How long have I got? So one of the things that I think about when people <laughs> contemplate things like death or who they are or their multitudes is that like as you get to a certain age, you start to be able to discern that there are voices in your head that are talking with you that you don't control. And you could write that off as like some form of schizophrenia, but the 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 like root example that I use is it's time to go for a run in the morning and there's something inside of you that says, "No, you don't have to go for a run. That's you know that's fine. You can go sit down, right?" And then if you start really thinking about it, you realize there are all of these competing voices in your head for urges oh let's go have some drinks tonight not just one but let's have 10 or let's uh you know you should really go uh watch television and take a break and then you start realizing like i am some set of voices that i don't control and yet they're me do you have this do you know what i'm describing yeah yeah definitely i mean i and I kind of, it, I, I don't, do I say them out loud? I possibly do say them out loud when I'm on my own. But yeah, I definitely have this inner dialogue going on between there's, there's the me that goes, no, come on, if you don't do this, you'll be sorry later. Like, oh, it is, it is raining though. <laughs> yeah, but come on, you, you know what will happen. And I do, I do, I sometimes I have little dialogues between past me, present me, and future me when, past me it, it when that present me is looking at past me and going why did you do that you're an idiot look where you've left me now you know thanks past me i now have like a week's worth of work to do in two days and now it's sunny and i can't go out and future me is going yeah you're talking a good game now present me but where am i going to be in a fortnight's time eh because you're so busy talking to past me you haven't actually sat down at the computer to start your work so <laughs> so so yeah i always have i'm projecting into the future like what future me will look back and reproach me with as my way of trying to get myself to do things it's almost like it's not quite my conscience because it's usually quite selfish things but it's 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 like trying to go well where am i what am i going to wish that i had done today in two weeks time I man, I, this is why this is such a fascinating question to me because everyone has some different way that they're having this dialogue, and and someone described for me not all that long ago that uh, if you think of the Greek gods not as gods on Mount Olympus, but that Mount Olympus is inside of you, and that each one of those gods is a different voice that's within you. That was like. All of a sudden, these people, the Greeks that I would roll my eyes at, like, how could you possibly believe in Aphrodite and Hades and all this stupid garbage? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, this explains something so deep inside of me that I don't even want to look at it. It's scary. That is so plausible, actually. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm going to I'm going to be hearing things in their voices now. And, and they get up to shenanigans as well. I'm going to be like, what are you guys doing in there? Stop it. Stop it. 
Right, and all of them, and and so the I, your your uh, personalized century did this to me. This is it got me thinking in a totally different track where you realize, like it's difficult enough to be controlling these voices inside of your head. And by controlling, I mean, just like figuring out which side of them I should listen to, which, which one is getting me into mischief. Chairing and which the meeting. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Who's chairing the meeting. And that like Zeus is a great example, right? Because he's supposed to be in charge, but other gods get off and do weird things. And then he kind of comes in, but he also does some stuff that you're no, like, you really shouldn't he, do that. He's shagging around or, whatever we call that these days being polyamorous whatever it is but disguised as a swan i mean like it yeah it, it would be like if it, if this was a company and you go and here's the uh the founder and ceo <laughs> oh sorry he's uh he's currently disguised as a bull having an affair down on earth <laughs> go like, whoa well this place needs some shaking up <laughs> So the, I'm, the, I'm trying to like make sure that you know that this is a reflection back to you that like your personalized century thing made me wonder, is this somehow spinning that internal con- conversation that we're having in, the, I, it must be spinning us off in a direction, right? Because those vo- voices that you have in your head, like if I read a tweet from you, it's entirely different for me to watch you, look at you, hear your voice than it is for me to read what you're doing because I I'm not actually reading you. It's the voices in my head are somehow interpreting that. And I I know that I sound like a schizophrenic, so it's hard to have the <laughs> language to know how to discuss this. No, I think you're right then. And and I think psychologists have actually studied this and gone, it's a bit of a myth that we are a kind of unitary consciousness, that at any one time we will have different different voices or different personalities or whatever pulling in different directions and and sometimes it is about can you at least get a majority vote inside you to decide to do something uh and sometimes you can't and yeah sometimes you will continue to be divided you get people who lead divided lives for years and years i always find this amazing people who kind of live live one life and yet and then they suddenly do something and you suddenly discover that actually there's been a kind of alternate them inside all this time, but that was just in the minority that maybe, and it's just suddenly gone, no, I'm doing this now um, and I'm off. I, I do think, yeah, I think the psychologization of life, I think is part of, of what's going on. That each of us, each of us, what's going on inside each of us individually has become very important because everything is personalized. And also, but but then the flip side is that's why everything's become personalized is because not only is each of us obviously very conscious of what goes on in our own minds, but now it's it's very normal for society to be very concerned with what's going on inside each person's mind. And I mean, you know, look at the way that mental health has become a massive thing for government policies and for companies. Now, and obviously there's a very practical thing there, which is that, you know, a lot of people are very depressed or, you know, have other mental health problems and and it's a problem for them and it's a problem for society. So you would obviously want to do something about it. But the idea that what goes on inside each person's mind is the business of government is quite odd when you think about it. It's like, well, hang oh, on. Oh, I, I, I was How working in a major... I, I was working at a major corporation when they started doing um, unconscious bias training and I like you had to go. And for me, this is one of those things where it's like, all right, let's really think about what we're doing here. And I went to the top legal compliance and I was like, I just want you to be aware at some point somebody could say to you, 
you are allowed to test for a bias that is inside of me that I myself do not know, but now you are going to have a piece of paper that tells you about it. Let's say your test is even accurate. What the hell right do you have to know what's going on in here? Because what you're actually getting is the output of my work, not the internal working of my brain. Yeah, I think that's a really good example, actually. And by good, I mean appalling. I, I think, yeah, exactly that. The idea that it's any business of your employer, what goes on inside your mind is, is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, one of, the, one of the plus sides of capitalism, which incidentally I don't think is the perfect system, but one of the plus sides about it is that there's a clear divide between your public life and your private life, your work life and, your, you know, and everything else in your life. You go in, your employer pays you for the time that you're there. And during that time, all, everything you produce belongs to them. And then you go home and it's none of their business. Uh, and now, not only, I mean, you know, not only are a lot of people working from home, so their employer does get to be in their house, uh, but also it's, yeah, they, they actually feel they have the right to get inside your unconscious thought processes, which is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, well, and in the United that, States, you're not allowed to give somebody an IQ test. But under the guise of like really? safety and and these other things, you're not allowed to find out, hey, how does this think a person think spatially and what's their verbal rating and let's let's do that. That's why the college education became as valuable as it is, because we set up a system where you pay for a piece of paper that demonstrates what your IQ is, but it doesn't really <laughs> have anything to do with whether or not you, you know, you're able to do that job because the company's not allowed yeah. to test that. Really? But now they're allowed to test your unconscious bias. It's it's That's absolutely amazing. absurd. It is absurd. Yeah, it is. And and I do think it, yeah, exactly. That's the very very dark side of this obsession with 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 people's individual psychology. And also is this I mean, it's this idea that that's where the answers to things lie, that you, you get a massive social problem and you go, well, you know, the answer to this is inside individuals people's psychology. <laughs> like is it though, really? Is it like maybe Maybe on a government, like either it's none of your business or there is actually something you could do on a social level uh, that's, that would resolve this or at least help it. So you're actually a great person to ask this for the steel manning um, capacity that you have. I am incredibly torn in agriculture. There is um, there there is a suicide problem. I think that the the largest group is veterinarians. I think if you go look at the statistics, they are higher than most. And you can imagine it's because their work pressure is very high. It's very dangerous. They spend a lot of time alone. They don't get sleep because they're called out into all hours of the night. So you could say there is a problem of suicide among a certain population. But what the ag companies have done is they have figured out hey, we can donate money to mental health programs to help the farmers because they have mental health problems. And what this, in effect, is doing is it's turning um, the mental health of your customers into a marketing campaign for you. And I don't want to denigrate it because I could be wrong. Maybe that money is helping and people need that outreach and, and I am um, incorrect. But to me, it feels so deeply cynical to have a company donating money that their that their customers not kill themselves, that mm -hmm. that we're in a dark place. So how should I steel man out of this idea? Okay, no, this is this is really tricky because 
yeah, no, I'm, I'm like you, I have an instinctive thing, which is, well, is this a, well, there's two things, isn't there? There's, is this, is this going to help? Is it, is it actually effective? Is it, is it going to do anything to make the situation better? And then the other one is, are you cynically trying to look like the good guys while not changing anything that you do uh, by donating to these, uh, to these charities? I mean, it is really tricky because because there is a problem, and and especially I think in farming communities, I think I think it is a big problem, and I don't know what the answer is. But often with these things, you think that there's probably very deep set reasons for this, and giving some money to charities isn't going to address those. I mean, is the problem that it's actually really hard to make a living as a farmer, and in addition to that, you're socially isolated, and the hours are really antisocial. And people are moving out of your communities, so you have fewer friends, and maybe you're less likely to find a life partner, and things like that. Um, sorry, anyone listening, don't don't get more depressed listening to this. By the way, I think <laughs> I'm really worried now. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that. Yeah, the... it is. But 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 it's like none of those things are going to be sold, really, are they? By by having a charity, I mean, it's important to have somebody to reach out to in your dark moment. But if if there must be reasons why a lot of people are that depressed. And unless you actually address those reasons and say, well, you know, are we expecting too much from, from people to, to live relatively isolated lives and work really hard and still not really make an amazingly good living? Maybe, maybe we really need to look into the market for food. Maybe we need to, maybe, maybe we need to pay more for food. Maybe, I mean, I think it's interesting you see in different countries, people have very different attitudes of what government should do. I can imagine the UK, the government would say, we need to put money into revitalizing rural communities and maybe trying to get other businesses and industries going in rural communities so that towns stay populated and young people stick around and maybe, you know, maybe small town colleges need to be places where young people want to stay and go to and not just up sticks and go to the city. And maybe those kinds of things would help, but none of those are really, you know, a mental health charity isn't going to do those things. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I try not to be cynical because my belief is that the darkness can come for all people, right? Like the, the thing yeah. that, that gets you down and that, and that in effect, the only way out is to have some principle, some thing that you're working towards and so for me, like, um, I am careful because my immediate knee jerk reaction is to say those charities are doing something cynically wrong and they're getting wealthy off of a, off of a cultural, um, massive, sad cultural change that's happening. Um, but then at the same time, like, I don't want to be wrong, right? Like if this is helping people, I don't, I don't want to mess around with something that's important, but I think that, um, the, the biggest challenge right now is that uh, in that world, empathy becomes the number one thing, right? People say, well, we must have empathy first. You have, you know, the, the highest virtue or one of the high virtues is empathy. And I don't think that it is. But I also don't think that a corporation has many other options other than to pay to appear to be empathetic. And so it's, it's just yeah. they're in a tough spot, too. No, exactly. I mean, you look at that and, and you go, well, what else could they do, though? Uh, and there probably isn't much else they could do. I, I mean, other employers, I'm much more cynical. I know I know a doctor who works in the health service over here uh, who's obviously been having a very hard time 
I mean, <laughs> has a hard time anyway, works in, oddly works in mental health. So, you know, he's constantly seeing extremely distressed people. And, uh, and but then when she has a hard time at work, the, the answer is to give her resilience training and training in dealing with difficult people. <laughs> you're kind of like, okay, but that's kind of, what you're kind of doing there is putting the responsibility onto her, like it's somehow her fault that, She's immensely overworked in a system that can't really cope with demand and uh, doing night shifts and this, you know, and now having to deal with coronavirus as well. <laughs> you kind of think, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not the answer. It's like a lot of people go, oh, you know, I, I'm really... Their companies are very, oh, you know, we really care about your mental health uh, and we want to be here for you and do come and talk to us. And they go and say, I'm, I'm just really stressed and overworked and I cannot possibly keep up this workload. Also, now I'm doing it all at home and trying to homeschool and there seems to be no division anymore between my work life and my home life. And they go, oh, yes, that's terrible. Would you like a free online counselling session? <laughs> like, maybe not. Maybe what they like is bit less work maybe you need to hire some more people to share the workload uh but somehow that's not on offer it's like no no we'll give you counseling so you'll feel better about it I do, I do think there is that danger of seeing the solution as you know it's like the mindfulness and 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 so on. it's like that obviously there are always things you can't change and you have to somehow cope with them but sometimes there are things you can change and what you want is not to become more serene about things that are there. You want to become less serene and change them. And, and I, I do think that's a danger that by, by focusing internally, you actually, you, you go, okay, well, I must change myself so that I am more content with my lot in life rather than going, Actually, maybe I shouldn't be content. Maybe this is rubbish. Maybe we could do better. I mean, actually, you said something, it's kind of you threw something in earlier, which I think is very true, which is the best thing is to have something outside of yourself that's bigger than you. And I mean, I think that's yeah, a, a general rule for being a good human, if you like, is to, to think in terms of something bigger than you and that will maybe go on after you've gone. But I also actually think as an individual, just for sanity and happiness, it's much better to have something outside of you to focus on. And I certainly, when I've had very dark times, that's the thing that's got me through is not sitting thinking about how I'm feeling, but actually having something outside of me that I felt was so important that I was going to drag myself out and go to work, even if I'm sitting at my desk with tears running down my face. It's like, this is really important and it's more important than me. And, and, you know, and then with hindsight went, well, thanks, person who got me in to do that because actually you really pulled me out of a hole even though that's not why you were doing it yeah you know? i think one of the habits that i picked up a long time ago is that when i'm really down like when when the when the darkness is all around i try my hardest to pick out somebody that i love and just write them a letter or call them to be like this is how you've made my life better and by the time you're done telling somebody else how they've helped you you all of a sudden are lifted up because you realize like, oh my God, there are people in my life. And like, I don't need them to cater to my needs or hear my problem or anything. There's never been a time where that has not uh, shifted my gaze. And so I think the only way you keep the gods from 
uh, fighting so violently inside of your Mount Olympus of your brain is is to find a way to, to get outside, like you were saying. That's great. I'm going to remember that one. Yeah, I do. I, I think that. And I think, again, this is this is one of the reasons why I think the personalized century is is a bad thing, that it encourages us to look inward and not outward. And that even even other people, it's like we become a bit obsessed not with what they're doing, but with what they think of us. So isn't it the old joke? It's like, well, enough about me. Uh, let's let's. Why don't you talk about what you think about me? <laughs> <laughs> and and that's no, you know, nobody ever got happy doing that because. And it's. Well, it's I, the gods I, looking I, at themselves in the mirror aren't any happier, right? Like they, no, they, exactly. they need something to build. They need something to work on. They need something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, definitely. Tamandra, this has been really good. I would love to have you on again, but I am certain that people in my audience will find what you're doing great. If if people wanted to like support your steel manning or your work, what could they do to support what you're doing? Oh, um, <laughs> oh, am I meant to have a SoundCloud or something? I have a I have a website which is just my name dot com. Um, so and my name is spelled as it sounds timandraharkness.com and there are links there to all the stuff that i'm doing and have done uh i i don't have any i'm not soliciting financial support it's, it's absolutely about you know if you it, i'm all about ideas really if you find these ideas interesting then you know get out and talk about them and argue about them and you know feel feel free to tell me why i'm wrong that's how i have mostly learned all the things that i've learned well, you have a fan in me. I am so glad that Claire Fox uh, connected us. And thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, actually. Thank you very much for having me. Ah!